there is a basis for most relationships, maybe family connections or common interests, perhaps a relationship between employee and employer. Well, the basis of the relationship between me, the pastor, and you, the congregation, is the call. Now, the foundation of the call is the shared belief that we have that God has called me to be your pastor, and you have affirmed that call. But there's also a further basis for that call. It's called the terms of call. And this is according to our book of church order. It further regulates our relationship. I'm obligated to perform my ministerial duties, and you're obligated to compensate me and support me. Just an example of relationships having a basis. And in the fifth sermon in this series in Deuteronomy, we will look at Moses beginning his second sermon. So I'm ahead of Moses by three sermons. And he begins this second sermon by restating the Ten Commandments, which are the basis for and demands of God's covenant relationship with his people Israel. And in particular, Moses addressed the new generation recounting their history and reminding them that they're obligated to keep the covenant, the terms of the covenant, as they are now east of the Jordan River and ready to cross over and take possession of the land. And so we'll be looking at three things today as we consider chapter 5. And as you may know, preaching on a complete chapter like this is a bit of a challenge, so we're not going to cover every single point of chapter 5. But what I hope to do is to give us just a very good summary of what Moses is preaching here in chapter 5 that we might apply it to our lives today. And so we'll be looking at the covenant people, the stipulations of the covenant, and then the covenant obligation that that new generation had and, by the way, we have. So let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have established a relationship with us by way of covenant. And we pray, Father, that today we might reflect upon the importance of the basis for and demands of that covenant relationship as spelled out in ten words, the Ten Commandments. And I pray today that you might show us that we certainly do not depend on keeping the Ten Commandments to be saved, but because we are saved, we are to have a high view of the Ten Commandments. We are to strive to keep them, that we might see that we are bound to keep the covenant. And we ask and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, Moses identifies the covenant uh, people. He got that new generation's attention right off the bat in verse 1 of chapter 5 by saying, Hear, O Israel, Shemai, O Israel. So when I want to emphasize something, I usually say, hey, listen up. Listen carefully. And Moses does something very similar here. Hear, O Israel. This is a phrase. This, 
is a formula that we'll see time and again for next week we'll see it in chapter 6 hear O Israel the Lord your God the Lord is one it's a phrase it, it's it's a signal that what is about to be said is incredibly vital incredibly important so listen up you know some people think they're above the law some people think that certain laws or a certain set of laws do not apply to them and so Moses anticipates that this new generation might be thinking, hey, those laws that God gave our parents at Horeb, they really don't apply to us. Hey, we're a new generation, and we're not bound by what God spoke to them. Well, Moses, in verses 2 through 5 of, of, of our chapter, that is our focus today, answers this potential objection resoundly by saying this and I'll just simply summarize the teaching in these three verses you new generation are just as bound to the Ten Commandments as your parents were that's the teaching hear old Israel hear old new generation God's covenant is with his people and their children down through the ages the covenant people of all ages including the covenant people in 2019 on this particular Sunday sitting in those pews are bound to keep the covenant now we'll look more at what does it mean for Christians to be bound to keep the Ten Commandments. We'll look at that under the third point. But right off the bat, Moses identifies the people of God, the covenant people. He answers this potential objection so that no one will be wondering, do these ten words apply to me? They apply, they apply to them, all of God's people through the ages, including you and me secondly we'll look at the stipulations themselves the, the the centerpiece of the basis for and the demands of God's covenant relationship with his people are these ten words ten, the Ten Commandments now as I said at the beginning preaching through an entire chapter like chapter 5 of Deuteronomy is a task and I cannot spend much time in one sermon looking at each of the Ten Commandments in a way that might be deserving of their importance. They're all important. But the one thing I can do is to read the law for us today, which I will do. And trust that God the Holy Spirit will apply His Word to our hearts. But as a preacher, I have to say something, and so I'll give brief commentary on each law. Moses preached the law, and it began with Moses reminding the new generation of the identity of the one speaking the law and the history of the speaker with the people. So if you look to verse 6, I am the Lord your God. 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This follows the form of the ancient Near Eastern treaties where the covenant maker identifies himself and then he establishes the history that he has had with those whom he is binding. And here God says, I am Yahweh, the Lord your God, Yahweh Elohim. And our history is this, I have redeemed you. Moses preached first, Deuteronomy 5, 7, you shall have no other gods before me. Yahweh demands exclusive worship and loyalty. No other suitors. Moses preached, Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and the fourth of those who hate me third or fourth generations of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my Commandments. Remember from last week, full devotion is to be given to the voice of God, the, the audible voice of God that was spoken out of the fire atop Mount Sinai. We talked about that in chapter 4. Thus making an image of God is idolatry and is prohibited. And notice what else Moses preaches here that those who hate God, who disobey his commands, who indeed make images, who commit idolatry, are cursed. And the consequences of that generation's sin flows down through as many as four generations. Not saying that generations one, two, three, four are, sin are sinning the same way, but the consequences of that sin has a bearing upon the generations that follow to the fourth generation. But notice this, that those who keep the Lord's commands, and by the way, if we keep the Lord's commands, it demonstrates our love for the Lord. If you love me, Jesus said, you will what? Obey me. Those who keep the Lord's commands, his steadfast love and his blessing will continue down through thousands of generations the consequences of obedience are far greater than the consequences of sin the mercy of the Lord is far greater Moses preached Deuteronomy 5 11, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain and to take the Lord's name in vain is to use the Lord's name in a worthless way or for a worthless purpose. For example, taking an oath like the Pharisees did with no intention of keeping it. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. Perjury is prohibited here. And of course, this command comes with a curse. 
Moses preached, Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or your sojourner or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Israel was to keep the seventh day holy, separate from the other six. They were not to perform the work they were free to do on the other six on the Sabbath day. And this pattern is the very pattern in which God created. He, he created in six days and he entered his rest on the seventh, that eternal rest that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, that eternal rest that we see in the, writer, the, the book of, of Hebrews. And so as we work six and rest one, we imitate God's work and rest. But the motivation here in Deuteronomy 5 is different in this commandment than the motivation in Exodus chapter 20. The motivation here has to do with the fact that God has redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, and they are to rest in that redemption. And one of the principles of one view of how Christians are to celebrate the Sabbath, that would be the continental view in theology, really focuses on the Lord's Day being the day that we rest in Christ. It pictures that. Instead of being focused on what we can't do, which tends to be a real issue in so many we focus on what we're called to do and that is to rest in Jesus and rest in his saving work Moses extends this command to the family to the serpents to the animals even to the sojourner coming through the land Moses preached fifthly honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. A command to honor and respect parents. And this command comes with a promise. Moses preached, Deuteronomy 5:17, you shall not murder. The command prohibits the unlawful, immoral, and negligent taking of human life. Think of the mass shootings that have taken place in recent months. Think of all of the violations of the sixth commandment that have taken place over the years by abortion doctors killing the unborn. This command never applies to war in the scriptures. And Jesus further says, that if you have anger in your heart to someone, you have violated this commandment. Moses preached, Deuteronomy 5.18, and you shall not commit adultery. The command prohibits the violation of that one flesh principle 
that we see as a foundation to God's institution of marriage in Genesis chapter 2, looking at and referring to the sexual relations between husband and wife. This commandment infers seeking purity outwardly, and it infers seeking purity inwardly. Jesus said that you violated this commandment if you look at someone who is not your spouse in a lustful way. Moses preached, Deuteronomy 5, 19, and you shall not steal. The law calls Israel to respect their neighbor's property. I mean, obviously, this applies to stealing a car, for example, but it also applies to stealing intellectual property. It applies to plagiarism. It applies to stealing another person's idea and making it your own without giving them credit. Moses preached, Deuteronomy 5, 20, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The Israelites were to tell the truth, and they were not to lie about a neighbor such that that neighbor would be found guilty and suffer a penalty or punishment for it. And then lastly, Moses preached the 10th commandment, Deuteronomy 5.21, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now this is an interesting commandment because the text makes a distinction between the word translated covet, your neighbor's wife, and the word translated desire, your neighbor's possessions. And the point is to emphasize that the wife is not a piece of property. Did you hear that, guys? The wife is not a piece of property, but the commandment applies to spouses and property. The prohibition calls Israel to have a pure heart with regard to really to all the other commandments. Now, we'll look in chapter 6 about the distinction between the first four commandments the vertical relationship and the, the other six commandments, the horizontal relationship, love God, love your neighbor in chapter 6. But hear, O Israel, hear, O new generation, hear, O covenant people here at Covenant Presbyterian Church. These are the commands of our covenant God. These are the bases the demands of and the basis for our covenant relationship. These 10 words. Did you hear them? Did you hear them in your heart? Thirdly, the covenant obligation. Reformed theology has, has traditionally understood the law functioning in three ways. When I say Reformed theology, I mean the theology that we embrace, though we embrace Reformed and Covenantal theology. But there are three ways that the law is binding to the Christian. And the first way is this, the law functions as a curb. You all know what a curb is. We see them every day as we're driving about. It keeps the car, it's supposed to keep the car in the you know, in the street. 
And so the, the curve is designed to restrain sin in the world. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. These restrain evil in the world. We experience God's grace, but all of God's creation experiences common grace. And the law has a function as a curb within society to restrain evil. And in that way, it's binding. Secondly, the law is binding in that it functions as a guide. A guide to show us the type of life that is pleasing to God. And what is pleasing to God is not merely outward conformity. Dan read from Matthew 5 and verse 20, where Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And our Lord is pointing here to heart obedience. What the Pharisees, by the way, missed. The Pharisees were great and very prideful at following the letter of the law, really in some cases to the extreme, but they failed to apply the law to their hearts, to follow the spirit of the law in their heart. And this is Jesus' main point in the Sermon on the Mount, to point out this incredible error that the Pharisees made and to call his disciples to yes obey, obey outwardly of course but more importantly God is concerned with what's going on in your heart and your motives and your desires do not commit adultery the letter of the law Jesus goes further don't even have a lustful thought when we look at the law applying to our behavior and our desires and our motives, we say, along with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Have you ever come to that point, the same point that Isaiah found himself in Isaiah chapter 6, as he was taken up into this, this vision into the very throne room of God, it wasn't just a vision. He was taken up into the throne room, and there he sees God in all of his holiness being worshipped by the seraphim. And, and what was the effect on Isaiah is that it crushed him because as he compared himself to the holiness of God, he realized what an awful sinner he was. Wretched man that I am. When we look at the law, that, that should be the effect on us. But then we also echo what Paul says in the next verse, Romans 7, 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law with my mind, with my flesh. I serve the law of sin. In other words, thanks be to Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in Romans chapter 8, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Paul compares his life to the law, he's crushed. And that is one of the uses of the law. The third use of the law is it functions as a mirror 
It functions as a mirror. I'll explain that in just a moment. I want to tell you just a brief story. When Renee and I traveled to Israel back in the 90s, we were part of a larger tour group, some members from the Bible church. We had this tour bus, and we had this Arab tour guide. He was an older gentleman. He was legally blind, and his name was Luis. And Luis was a hoot. Much fun. And we would travel wherever we were going in Israel. He was an Arab, but he really knew knew the country. And Luis would stand up in the tour bus when we would stop, and, and he would say, Now, follow me. Do not turn to the left nor to the right. Straight ahead. Follow me. Then he would get off the bus, and then we would get off the bus, and Luis would be walking. Follow me. Do not turn to the left or to the right. And we were like, we scattered all over the place because we wanted to see all of these sites. And poor old Luis, totally ignorant of the fact that, that his followers were not following him, <laughs> just scattered to the left and to the right and sometimes behind. The new generation was commanded to keep on the narrow path of obedience, not deviating or turning to the left or to the right, but stray, stay on the straight and narrow. Look at verses 22 through 31. The Horeb generation were struck with fear at the terrible sight of Mount Sinai. It was on fire, all kinds of noise, and here God is speaking from the fire. They were terrified. They believed if they continued to be in God's presence without there being something in between, they would be destroyed. And so they asked Moses to mediate between themselves and God. And then in verse 27, the people pledged that they would obey whatever word Moses brought back to them from God. And Moses concludes the fifth chapter with these words in verses 32 through 33. Well, he doesn't conclude the chapter with these words, but he does say in verses 32 through 33 that the people are not to turn aside to the right hand or to the left, but are to walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. God's people, however, operate very much like Renan, myself, and our other compatriots on the tour there in Israel. Follow me, straight ahead. Do not turn to the left and to the right. We turn, don't we? We violate the covenant. And we need a mediator. We need a mediator who perfectly and personally obeyed the demands of the law. We need a mediator who's, on whose merit God will accept us as having a perfect record in him. The people ask for a mediator, but God has provided a mediator. 
And that mediator is Jesus. He did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law perfectly and personally. Dan read, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets in Matthew 5, 17. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, that is to say, not the least little stroke of, of a Hebrew letter, not even a full letter, just a little stroke, just a little appendage of that letter will, will drop away, will pass away until it all is accomplished. He fulfilled the covenant stipulations, not for himself, he had no need to, he was already perfect, he fulfilled them for us on our behalf. And through the gift of faith, we are credited with his perfect record keeping and thereby accepted before God as righteous before the law. Not only that, but Jesus paid the penalty as we sang about in several of our hymns this morning. He paid the penalty for our covenant breaking by his death on the cross. We are washed in his blood. On his merit, by his work of pardoning grace and his perfect record, his imputed righteousness, God declares us justified. Jesus fulfills the obligation of keeping the covenant for us. But here's the question I have for us. Does this mean that the law is no longer binding? We've already saw that the law is is binding in that it is a curb. It restrains evil. The law is binding as, as well in that it is a mirror. It is a curb, it is a guide, and it is a mirror. It's a mirror that shows us our sin. It is a mirror that shows us the holiness of God. It is a mirror that drives us to Christ. And so when we look at the law, we can say, no, we're not obligated to keep the law for salvation. Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Salvation is not based on our perfect and personal obedience to the demands, it's based on Christ's perfect and personal obedience. But yet the law is still binding in that we are saved to walk in obedience. Look at Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The law functions as a mirror. It shows us that God is holy. It reflects our true self as sinful. It shows us our need for Christ, the mediator. And it drives us to him in repentance and faith. In Christ, we have a higher view of the law than the legalist or the Pharisee. In, in Christ, we see that we are to strive for a greater obedience, not just outward conformity, but inward heart conformity to the law keeping the letter and the spirit. In Christ, we obey out of love for all that God has done for us. And in Christ, we are new creations. And the norm for us 
is keeping the law, not breaking it. Because we are new creations in Christ. I just remember back when Ray and I went through a discipleship program, and we were talking about just the fact that we were recovering Pharisees, that, that we, we try to craft laws to keep laws, and we impose those laws on, on other people. But if you think that you can keep, a, keep the law and be right before God, in actuality, you have a low view of the law, thinking that a man can actually keep it but a high view of the law is acknowledging that we can't keep the law. Only one kept it, Jesus. And he kept it for you and me. And therefore the law is binding. It is a curb. It is a guide. But it is a mirror that drives us to Christ. And in him, we not only can seek to keep the law outwardly but to actually truly keep the law by obeying it in our hearts Deuteronomy 5 32 through 33 you shall be careful therefore to do as the Lord your God has commanded you you shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus has kept the law perfectly for us. We thank you, Father, that even though we struggle to obey, yet his blood covers all of our sin. We thank you, Father, that you restore us and you give us faith that we might ever seek you in walking in obedience. So, Father, I pray that you would show us that indeed we are obligated to keep the law, that we might see that the basis for and the demands of our relationship with you, the very core, are these ten words, but even more, these ten words that were completely fulfilled by Christ and credited to our account. So in reality, the law is not set aside, but fulfilled. And it's Christ who really is the very center of our relationship with you and remind us that we are obligated to repent, believe, and to walk in obedience as your covenant people. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.